Well, good morning. It's nice to be here with you. Such a privilege to be able to open up the scriptures. Uh, I've been given this simple task to talk about the Bible and Jesus this morning. And so if you've got six hours, I hope you do. We're just going to cover this little simple topic. Um, but in all seriousness, I want to share a story with you out of the Gospel of John in chapter 7, just to kind of summarize what the Bible is about and what Jesus is about. Now, it's strongly believed that John's gospel was written by one of Jesus' closest followers and dear friends named John, the son of Zebedee. And it's believed that John wrote this book many years after following Jesus and really meditating on the life and works of Jesus and he wrote this story down for the community that he lived amongst and served. And at the end of this book, John tells us why he wrote this book. This is what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his followers. Those are not recorded in this book. But these things that are recorded have been done so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may have life in his name. So John makes it very clear. He did not write a biography of the life and works of Jesus, an exhaustive biography or an account of the life and works of Jesus. But what he recorded was handpicked, curated, in order that the reader or the listener might believe. That Jesus is God's anointed king and savior of the world. That he is the son of God. And that by believing that, you and I might have a certain quality of life. That we might experience a fullness of life. What the Bible calls eternal overflowing life. Now that's an interesting statement. John connects what we believe in trust in and center our lives around to the quality of life that we experience. Because you see, each of us is believing in, trusting in, centering our lives around something, and that belief is taking you somewhere. It's either taking you further into life or further into death now and forever. But John writes this story of Jesus so that you and I would reconsider our lives at a deep level and ask this question, am I really living? Am I experiencing a quality of life that I could tell somebody else, follow me. I want you to experience the same quality of life that I am experiencing. Am I experiencing a kind of love, a hope and peace in life that I can recommend to others or here's the real question, do I have life in the name of Jesus? And so I pray this morning as I share the story of Jesus and his offer of living water that we would be able to reconsider this, look at our own lives and respond appropriately to Jesus. Now I want to read just a little bit of this story for you so you can get the context. So John chapter 7, it says this, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, and he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there and were looking for a way to kill him. But the Jewish festival of tabernacles was drawing near. 
And Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so your disciples there may see the works that you do. Because no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secrecy. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I show that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Now, after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went up, not publicly, but privately. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching and looking and waiting for Jesus, asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him because they feared the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and he began to teach. And the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did he get such learning and understanding of the scriptures? He was never taught by the professionals. Now skipping down to verse 37, it says, on the last day... And greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Because up to this time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is God's word. Now, the whole section of John that we're looking at is really centered around the idea of the presence of God living right in the midst of his people. And it's this fulfillment of this festival that the Jews are attending now, this idea of God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people is actually a powerful theme that runs all through the Bible. If you open up the first pages of the Bible, you'll read that God makes a beautiful world. And he makes two humans and he lives with them in this beautiful, luscious garden. And he walks with them and he talks with them. They live in this beautiful home together. They're friends but we, we've been told that something happened. Something came into the world and separated God from human beings. But at the very end of the Bible, we're told this. That the dwelling place of God is once again with people. He will be their God and they will be his people. See, the Bible has this picture of what God desires for humans. He wants to live in their midst. He wants to be near them. He wants to bless human beings. He doesn't want to spoil our fun. All the beauty that we see, all the goodness in life that we experience from the joy of a good meal to warmth by the fire to the beauty of the ocean to deep friendship and love. 
All of these are gifts of God. They're whispers and echoes of his rich, rich goodness that he wants for human beings. And the whole story of the Bible is telling us how God is determined to put his presence right back in the middle of humanity. That's what the Bible is really all about. And that's what this story is really all about. See, the Bible uses this picture or this metaphor of temple. In ancient times, temples were not just places where you go to worship or to make sacrifices, but it was believed that this is where the divine and the human came together. This is where heaven and earth intersected. This is where you met with God. And so that's why the temple is this theme all through the Bible, because God wants to be with people. Now, for our story, the ancient Jews had three festivals that they would make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to celebrate. They were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was probably one of the most joyous festivals they had. And actually, as I was thinking about it, it's a lot like Creation Fest, maybe a little less wet, but... People would come from all over and they would make their way to Jerusalem and then they would find things like, you know, sticks and canvas and rubbish bins and all sorts of things. And they would make dwelling places out of them and they would live in these dwelling places for eight days and they would have these massive parties and they would celebrate. And what they were doing is they were remembering the 40 years that their ancestors spent in the wilderness camping with God. And the Jews from all over the world would make their way to Jerusalem. For eight days, they would camp out in these makeshift dwellings, celebrating and remembering the God who had promised to dwell in their midst and be their God. And they would particularly call to remembrance God's provision while they wandered in the wilderness, that God provided water when there was none, that God provided food from heaven when there was none. And so... During these times, the nation would come together. They would pray for rain, for the harvest. They would pray for provision from God. But ultimately, they would pray for the restoration of the world. Because they knew that rain and food were not enough to fill the deep brokenness of the world. And so they prayed this prayer that God would restore all things. That he would renew all things. And that he would bring his presence to the midst of his people. Bible commentator Tom Wright says this, Feast of Tabernacles was like a yearly national camping trip in Jerusalem. All kinds of lavish celebrations took place involving lighting of lamps, dancing by torchlight, processions that ended on the eighth day with pouring out of water and wine in the temple. There was a march of priests and people around the altar carrying citrus fruits, fruits and waving palm branches. The worshipers at the festival of tabernacles looked expectantly to a future time when life-giving waters would flow from the temple and heal the land. Just like water flowed for their ancestors from the rock in the wilderness. This idea, he says, this expectancy would be in the hearts and thoughts of the people. So everybody's thinking about this. They're thinking about restoration. They're thinking about God's presence. They're thinking about the healing of the world. And then we're told that Jesus goes up to the festival and there's many people that have all sorts of different opinions about him. He's a good man. He's demon possessed. Is he the Messiah? Everybody has so many different questions. And even these 
guards, these temple police are sent to arrest Jesus because the religious leaders are jealous of them. But they come back to Jesus and they say, we've never heard anybody else speak like this man before. The things that he says, the things that he claims about himself. And so in the middle of all this hubbub and this wild festival, it says that Jesus stands up in the midst of this and he offers himself to the crowd. And he says this, I'll read it one more time. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, the question is, what in the world does this have to do with this festival? What is Jesus talking about? Well, there is this prophet of Israel named Ezekiel. And he was taken captive into Babylon. And while he was there, he had a vision of the end of time. And he had a vision of God's temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem. But this temple was radically different. This temple was actually the size of the whole city of Jerusalem. And he has this vision that there is healing water that begins to flow from the temple out into the parched and dry land. And it begins to heal everything it touches. And so I just want to read a little bit of this prophecy to you so you could get a bit of the vision of what Ezekiel saw. He says that a man brought him to the entrance of the temple and he saw water coming out from under the altar. And it was moving towards the east. The water was coming down from under the side of the temple. And then it says that he brought him out through the north gate and led him around the outside to the outer gate facing east. So Ezekiel's making his way around the perimeter of the temple. And everywhere he looks, water is flowing out from the foundation of the temple. And as this messenger takes Ezekiel out, he says the water just begins to get deeper and deeper and deeper. He says he goes out and it's ankle deep. And then he goes out a little further and then it's knee deep. And then he goes out a little further, it's waist deep. And then he says this, and I love this. He says, and then all of a sudden it was a river that could not be crossed. There is so much water in life flowing from the temple. And it's healing and touching everything around it. Listen to what it says at the very end. It says, there will be large numbers of fish where the water flows and it will heal everything it touches. So where the river flows, everything will live. It will even heal the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea in Israel. And listen to this, it says there will be fruit trees of all kinds that grow on the banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, and every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. What does that mean? The Bible foretells a time when life and healing would flow like a mighty overflowing river from the presence of God, God's temple, to the ends of the earth for the healing of the nations, healing all that is broken, wrong, and unjust in the world. Now, the interesting thing is that this was not always 
the way the temple functioned. Quite the opposite, in fact. There was a time in Israel's history where only very specific people could come to the temple. And they would have to, to come into the presence of God, they would have to go through all sorts of cleansing and baptismal rites and sacrifice in order to meet with God. See, you could not bring uncleanness, brokenness, injustice, and unrighteousness into God's sacred space. But what this passage shows is the temple being reversed. Rather than the sacred space being defiled by uncleanness and unholiness, the sacred space of God is on the move. God's presence is moving throughout the earth and it's healing everything it touches like a mighty river. Now it's fascinating when we Note that this is the exact thing that is happening in Jesus' life and ministry. See, in normal, everyday Jewish life experience, if you touch somebody that had a disease or an open wound, you were considered unclean. And you'd have to do all sorts of washing and baptism and sacrifice in order to make yourself what they call ceremonially clean once again. If you touched a dead body, you were made unclean. But the thing is, with Jesus, he touches the sick and they're made whole. He touches the disabled and now they are able. He touches the dead body and they are raised to life. How? Why? What's happening here? Well, John tells us at the beginning of his story that Jesus himself is the incarnated Lord of creation who walked in the garden with the first humans. He is the enfleshed God who tabernacled, who pitched his tent with Israel in the wilderness. He is the same God who put his holy presence in the temple at Jerusalem. He is the God who became flesh. John says, and made his dwelling or tabernacle among us, and we have seen his glory. So Jesus' claim as he stands there in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles is that he is the one and true place where divine and human meet. He, Jesus, is the life-giving presence of God. He is the one who gives this Life-giving, life-restoring, soul-satisfying water. And John tells us that what Jesus is talking about is God's spirit. Jesus offers anyone the presence of God that will bring life and healing and hope and peace to their very being. So here is the first application of this text. If you are thirsty, and I'm not talking about physical thirst. If you have not found anything in this life that truly satisfies you. If you want that deep thirst and deep hole within your soul filled, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come. And he will give you this living water. Come clean yourself in his healing water. Come drink and be satisfied. All you need is want. 
The reason that we are as humans spiritually thirsty is because we were made for friendship with God. God created us for himself. He created us to be in relationship with him, to live in his presence. God, C.S. Lewis said this, God created human beings to run on him as a car runs on fuel. He is the fuel our souls need. But how does Jesus fit into all this? Well, Jesus is the one who gives us the very presence of God. See, John has already told us that Jesus is talking about God's Holy Spirit. But at that moment, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I hope I can clearly communicate this. But John uses this word of Jesus being glorified. It's literally the term lifted up. But Jesus always also uses this term to speak how he will be lifted up on the cross. And see, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, something fascinating happens. Jesus cries out one of the only things that he says on the cross. There's only a few things, but he screams this. I thirst. As Jesus hangs from the cross, he cries out not about his head that has been pierced with thorns, not about his hands that have been driven through with nails, not about the lashings on his back, not about his bleeding feet, but he cries out about a deep, deep thirst. Why is Jesus thirsty? It's because he is being poured out that you and I might drink deeply of God's soul-satisfying, life-giving water. On the cross, as Jesus is glorified, lifted up for the world to see, for anyone and everyone to believe in him, to come and drink, he's being poured out, emptied, so we can be filled. Jesus experiences on the cross the human soul's desperate thirst for living water. He is experiencing a draining, so we can be filled, so we may live. And then we're told by John that as Jesus says this, he bows his head. And John says that he releases the Spirit. Jesus releases the Spirit of God. So now the Spirit of God can fall upon Jesus' people and we can be filled. I wonder if you ever think about what does God actually want from me? You know, we speak of God, this almighty being who made everything, who deserves our worship and our adoration, our loyalty. What does God really want for human beings? Well, listen to Jesus. God wants human beings to be satisfied. He wants us to be fulfilled. He wants us to have meaning and purpose beyond ourselves. Even beyond this short existence of maybe 70 or 80 years that we call Human life. God wants us to be deeply satisfied and fulfilled. And the Bible is about how God Himself came to give that satisfaction, that filling and healing to anyone through what Jesus has done. So, for anybody who's thirsty in a soul satisfying way, all you need is nothing. All you need is the want and the hunger and the thirst that you have. 
freely receive God's gift of life. But now there's also a second application to this text. Listen again to Jesus' words. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So Jesus is not just talking about what he does to us, but what he's going to do now through us. And sometimes we might miss this because we don't think about this way. Whoever believes in me, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Now going back to that prophecy that I read from Ezekiel, remember it said that there are fruit trees that grow along this river. And they have leaves that don't wither, they have fruit in every season. Because the water from the sanctuary flows directly to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So understand, Jesus, what he's saying is not just a reference to what he does for us. It's definitely that. But it's also what God is going to do through us. He's promising to make those who drink from Jesus into channels or conduits. From which God's spirit works to bring healing and filling to those around us. Jesus said something similar to a woman by a water well. He said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water that wells up into everlasting life. See, this is what happens for those who have believed in Jesus. God's living spirit comes and takes up residence in our lives. God's life-giving presence goes with God's people everywhere we go. And God's spirit wants to make this appeal through you if you've received the spirit of God. If anyone is thirsty... Come and drink, be satisfied and filled, be healed by God's life-giving presence. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, my goodness, I surely don't feel like my little life reflects rivers of living water. Have I done something wrong? Am I not drinking properly or frequently enough? Many of us probably feel... That sort of response to Jesus' teaching. But most spiritually vital Christians are honestly, barely, if at all, aware of being so. Bible commentator Charles Erdman said this. I love this. He says, I am now convinced that those Christians who are most filled with the Holy Spirit are those who are least conscious of it. All they know is that they want to make much of Jesus. They want to serve him, and they want to put Jesus' life on display. Now, please hear me. In no way am I saying that this has anything to do with us, our righteousness, our finding the divine spark within ourselves. This is nothing that we've done, nothing that we have accomplished. This is something that has been done to us. We have drinking from Jesus, and we have been satisfied By the life-giving spirit that he gives. We are not co-redeemers, but God invites us to be partners with him. We're made channels through which God's spirit flows to lives around us. 
This is how God's spirit works healing in the world. It's through his people. God's presence goes with us everywhere we go. It's the church as we align our lives with the way of Jesus and the movement of the Spirit of God. And we do this corporately as congregations or groups of congregations. We tackle with prayer and service big issues of injustice and brokenness. Whether in sex trafficking, addiction, genocide, abortion, adoption, hunger and homelessness. The poor, ethnic issues, evangelism, peace and making community in our cities. But then individually, we also bring the presence of God to bear upon the communities that we live in, meeting and rubbing shoulders every day with people that are thirsty, that are needing living water. And we do this by listening to them, listening to their pain, where they hurt, what they fear. We do this by loving them. We do this by serving them. And through this, we bring this living water to bear upon their lives. Now, as American author Nancy Piercy, she says this. She says, our families and churches must become centers of civilization that reach out beyond themselves with a model form of community. The strongest Christian communities, whether families or congregations or even groups of singles, are those driven by a larger vision, a sense of witness to the world. If God has given you a dependable income, a loving spouse, a strong church community, a reliable group of friends, those gifts are not just for you. They are to equip you to reach out and draw in those who are broken and searching. God is giving you, church, the opportunity to bring hope that Christianity is real and not just words. To put flesh and bones on the message of hope and healing. Christians must be prepared to serve the wounded, the refugees, she says, of the secular moral revolution whose lives have been wrecked by its false promises of freedom and autonomy. We are at a unique moment in history where we have an incredible opportunity to become safe havens where people witness the beauty of relationships reflecting God's own commitment and faithfulness. This is what Jesus wants to do in the world. He wants to touch individual lives. He wants to put his healing, filling presence in us. And then he wants us to offer that to people everywhere we go. Offering the love of God. Offering the healing of God. Offering the service of God to anybody who is wanting. Anybody who is thirsting. Now, let me just say this. You can't do everything. You can't. You are limited and you are local. So I just would ask, what is one way right now that your life, Christian, church, can be a conduit of filling and healing to those around you? Those who don't know this good, life-giving, soul-filling, wound-healing God, how can you be a conduit of living water. This work that we are called to, it's work that is unhurried, 
It's work that's conversational. It's work that's deep and personable. It's work that is convicting and transformational. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon of faithful presence. You are called as you are, where you are, to be who you are, representing Jesus and his soul, satisfying and healing water to those around you. Just like Jesus, we are sent by God into our surrounding cities, our neighborhoods, to our co-workers, our family members and friends, to serve with our words and actions, to awake them to the deep spiritual thirst that every human has for God. That through our life, our witness, our service, our gracious spirit, they would realize that they have been seeking living water all their life. Now John's gospel is the story of the eternal God who became flesh, touchable, tangible flesh and blood. And the gospel is meant to do the same in our life. Anyone who believes in Jesus is promised that the Spirit, God's refreshing personal presence, will come to live within them. God will make them a conduit of living water through which he can dispense healing to the world around us. Whether we are gathered together on a Sunday morning in worship or we're scattered to the places that God has called us, we are meant to be a foretaste of the great day when healing water will flow from the presence of God and heal the world. That's what God's people are meant to be. What does it take from us? Be what you are. Be what you were created in Christ Jesus to be. A fountain of living water flowing out to the world around you. Amen? Amen. So we're going to do something just beautiful and wonderful together. We're going to do a physical response to Jesus' offer this morning. And we're going to do that in a Christian act called communion. Jesus, uh, before he was crucified, the evening before he passed around bread and a cup to his disciples in the middle of this very significant meal. And he says, take This is my body, as he passed around the bread. It's been broken for you. Every one of you eat it. And then he passed around this glass of wine and he says, This cup represents the blood of the new covenant. All of you take and drink it and as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. What Jesus is actually calling us to do is to, when we take communion, the bread and the cup, that we remember him means that we recalibrate our lives around him. It's like a coming home to Jesus. We say, Jesus, my life is with you. Jesus, I'm following you. Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to imitate your way of life. And so, church, we have this opportunity to come and to realign our lives with the ways and works of Jesus. And so I pray that we would do that with an open heart this morning. Maybe if we're carrying a burden, that we would offload that and allow God's Spirit to take that up for us. Maybe if we've come with a deep wound or hurt, that we would bring that and ask the Spirit of God to bring healing to that in our lives. But I also want to say to those who are not Christian, Jesus also invites you to this table. He says at this table you can come and drink. 
and you can experience his life-giving presence. His body was broken for you on the cross. His blood was shed so that you could be forgiven of the wrong that you have done to others, that you could be cleansed of all the pain and hurt that's been done to you, that you could be reconnected with the life-giving presence of God and you can experience life in Jesus' name. And so as the band leads us, we invite anybody who is willing and wanting to come, come to the table, meet Jesus, unload your burden, and receive his life-giving presence. Amen.